The Old Testament reading is from Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 16. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship to, into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to, into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came down and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for the man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our offering box is also a step stool. Some of you already know that. Thank you, Ansley. You become a communion member, and we put you right to work. Great job. Let me pray for us before we think about this. Father, we we come before you again this morning and just thank you for your word. And we thank you that it is living, it is active. We pray that this morning that it would do its good work in our own hearts It would both convict and comfort us, and ultimately that it would point us to your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, you remember we we began looking at this book of Jonah by seeing that God calls his prophet. Jonah had already been a prophet. Um, He had already done some some good work in Israel. He was a a bit of a hero in a way. Um, because he had, been a, he had been a popular prophet who had said good things. And then God calls Jonah to, to do something that Jonah is not very excited about, to say the least. God calls Jonah to cross over boundaries that he was not in any way comfortable with. And God calls Jonah to go 
and to preach to the city of Nineveh. And Nineveh at the time was known, it, they, were, they were not liked by Israel. They were despised by Jonah. They were a violent, pagan city. And what I said last week and what I'll say um, over and over again as we look at this letter, that this, at this book, that this book is not primarily about Jonah. It's not primarily about how well Jonah did. It's not about his failures and it's not about his successes. That the, what I want us to see in this book, more than anything, that it is about the compassion of God. That this is about a God who sends his prophet into the world to, to call ones that he despises to repent so that they might believe in him. And the question that that, raises, that that raises for us, and the question that I think this book of Jonah will continue to raise for us, is the simple question, are we who have been shown the compassion of God, are we as compassionate as the God we claim to serve? Are we becoming more like the God that we claim to serve? Are we becoming more compassionate? Uh, maybe another way to ask that question Are we eager to show grace to others because we understand that we have been shown grace? But I also want you to remember that this isn't just, it's not just an individual call for Jonah, that Jonah really represents the people of God. And this book, as Israel would have read this book years after this account happened, it would have been a reminder to Israel of what their role was in the world. It would have been a reminder to them of the way that God thinks about the world. It would have been a reminder to them that they were supposed to be a light unto the nations. That they were, be, they were to be ones who represent God's compassion and his love for the world. It was a reminder to them that they were no different than the world. That they were God's people, not because of anything that they had done, not because that they had earned it, that it was completely unmerited. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, and God says, I didn't choose you to be, choose you to be my people because you were greater, or you were bigger, or you were more powerful, you were even more moral. I chose you because I chose you. And so that brings up the question, I think this passage this morning especially brings up this question to us, is what is the role of the church then in the world? What, what's the role, I mean, these are complicated times, these are times that um, um, are not, it's not easy to listen and watch the news, whether it's local or national or around the world, what is the role of the church in the world? Why did you come here this morning? What is this body supposed to be about? And maybe to follow that question, what is, what is your individual role as a member of the household of God. If you belong to Jesus, that, that is what you are this morning, that you are actually a member of God's family. You are a member of his household. So why are you here? What is your role in the world? Um, I heard a story this week from a, a friend who's a pastor out. Um, he's in L.A. That's not lower Alabama, but Los Angeles. And um, he was, you know, he was talking about the fact that his, his neighbors, like the people that on his street, the people that he meets, really everyone he interacts with in his city, for the most part, he feels like they're mostly unchurched and they're mostly not believers. And in fact, they're fairly hostile to Christianity at times, or at least they think it's incredibly backwards and incredibly antiquated. And they even sort of think that, you know, maybe Christians are what's wrong with the world. 
And so in the midst of that and being a pastor in this, and planting a church in this city and thinking through how do we approach these people, one of the things that he does is he just throws parties. On a street, he throws big block parties and he invites all of his neighbors and he also invites um, a large portion of his church to come to these parties. And he sort of just sits back and watches them interact. That he wants his neighbors to, to meet and interact and know the people in his church. And he thinks maybe that will have, you know, some effect. And he said after his last party, there was a guy on the street who was really one of the most hardened and cynical that he had met. And he pulled him aside like a day later as they're out in their front yard. And he was like, he's like, you know, man, you throw the best parties. And he's like, thanks. And he's like, but, you know, there's these people at your parties, every time I've come to one of your parties, I don't know how to put it. They're just really different than I am. And he's kind of a higher up at HBO. And so my friends sort of like tentatively ease into this conversation and is asking, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? Um, and he said, well, you know, what I realize is that none of the people that I've met at your parties give a blank about everything that I think is super important. And he was even maybe more nervous by that statement and waded in a little further and said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you know what my life is about. My life is about, you know, rising to the top. It's about money. It's about power. It's about success. And he said, I, I talk to these people and it just seems like it's bewildering. It seems like they don't care about any of that. None of that seems impressive to them. He was like, oh. And he said, I've noticed that when I'm, I'm talking to them, they're intently listening to me more than anybody else in my life. That they really seem like they want to hear what I have to say. And then they ask me these thoughtful questions. And he said, I feel, you know, it's, he says, it feels weird to say, but I feel like a person when I come to your parties. And he began to ask these questions about why they were different. Like, why are these people different than any other people that he's met? And it's this incredibly simple story. And it's a simple scenario, and yet it's incredibly profound. Because what's happening is it's a group of people that are not hoarding together and hiding from the world and not wanting to interact with people who may not believe the same things that they believe, may not talk like they talk, may not look like they look, but they instead are throwing a party and inviting them in to say, we want you to taste of the grace of God. And that's simple, like I said, but it's, it's not easy. And you see that in Jonah. Because Jonah's gut reaction when God calls him is to turn tail and run. He literally gets on a boat and he heads in the exact opposite direction of where God tells him to go. Because what Jonah is thinking is that my ministry was just fine, thank you very much. That I was doing well with people who shared my tradition and who shared my language and who shared my culture and who understood what I was talking about. But I don't really want to go over to those people. And so this passage opens up as we have Jonah boarding a boat in Joppa to go to Tarshish. We have God hurling a great wind upon the sea. And this is a, I mean, the word is, is, is a pretty intense word. There's other places in this book where God, who we see as sovereign over all things, 
he places things, or he, you know, he places a gourd in one instance. He appoints a worm in another place. But here he hurls, he hurls a storm upon the sea. And what I, what I think that we'll see this morning is that God is often working out his grace and he's working out his compassion in the most unexpected ways and in the midst of storms that we may not understand. And so what I want to think about is just two things this morning. I want to think about what, I want to think about the church and the world in the midst of this storm. And then I want to think about God's compassion in the midst of this storm. The, the world and the church. You know, as much as Jonah wanted to run away from these pagans, these, despi- these people that he despised, as much as he wanted to run away from ones he didn't think deserved to hear God's word, God simply will not allow him to do that. God continues to pursue him because, frankly, God loves Jonah too much to let that happen. And because, thankfully, God knows that every one of his prophets... He already knows this. Every one of his prophets, I can say with some assurity, every one of his preachers, every one of his missionaries, every one of his disciples, every one of his followers are weak and afraid and scared and selfish. And it is not news to him. And so he continues to pursue Jonah. And ironically, as Jonah is running from Nineveh, as he's running from these people, these wicked people, he ends up in a ship full of pagan Gentiles. I don't think that's a coincidence. I really don't think that's a coincidence. So who are, let's, let's think about the world first. Who are these sailors? Who are these mariners that he's in the boat with? I think that they're a little microcosm of what the world was like outside the borders of Israel. They're people who they don't know the true and living God. They're apparently from all different places because when the storm hits, they each turn to their own God and begin to worship their own God. They're a little picture of the world. They're a picture of a world that exists, I think, around each and every one of us. Because what you find in this situation with the sailors is also true about our neighbors and our coworkers. And we could say, I think, fairly everyone who's ever existed, that at the core, we're actually very deeply religious. And we're also deeply afraid. We're afraid of dying. And we cry out in the midst of that because we know that there's something beyond our ultimate control. And so this isn't the first time that these guys have been on a boat, right? They are mariners is what, you know, they're sailors. And this is, they, they've been through storms probably many times before, but at this point, they know that this storm is a doozy. And they know that it's probably going to mean certain death for them. And so what do they do? They each turn to their own God, and they begin to cry out to their own God. And you see, their gods, their thinking must be offended by something that they have done. And so they turn to them. They must be doing something dreadfully wrong. And so in the midst of the storm, what we find out is that everyone really worships something. Everyone knows that they're not ultimately in control. And the same is true in our world. I mean, this has not changed, that everyone around you in a sense, is deeply religious, even if they claim not to be. That they're crying out for something to give them peace. That we cry out, you know, to 
productivity. We cry out to success, that we cry out to, you know, having a life that looks kind of nice on Instagram, that we cry out to romance, uh, to thinking that there is that one person out there that is going to heal me from my pain and take away my pain. And here's the thing, if the sum of our life is what we do or what we're able to control or what we're able to accomplish, then what I can guarantee is that deep down we are a wreck and we're incredibly anxious. Like these sailors, you and I, we are surrounded by people. It's, it's, it's good for us to remember this because what we normally look at when we look at ourselves and we look at the world is we think everybody else is doing better than we are. We think everybody else is more successful, everything, everybody else is more gifted, everybody else is more talented, everybody else is okay. And what we have to be reminded of is that the world around you is a desperate world. It is a world that is, in many ways, dying to hear about the compassion of God. They may not look desperate, but if you listen, if you interact, if you engage, if you actually take the time to hear them, then you'll hear it. Because these sailors, they do not know a God of love. That's a foreign concept to them, but even, they, they, don't, they don't know that this storm is actually about to drive them into the arms of a loving God. They don't know that. And so they begin to hurl even their cargo overboard because, you know, maybe that was one of the gods that they even worshipped. They worshipped the god of mammon. They worshipped the god of money and stuff. And this is the reason they're on the boat in the first place. But in the face of death, it is meaningless, and they throw it overboard. And the question we ask in the midst of this storm and as we think about these sailors is where is God's people? Where where are God's people in the midst of this storm? And I said earlier, Jonah really represents the people of God. And where do we find Jonah? Jonah is asleep. He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. He's nestled up against this, this precious cargo because Jonah is so deeply concerned with himself He is so concerned with himself that he doesn't notice that his neighbor is crying out and his neighbor is perishing. He isn't thinking about who is in the boat with him. He gets as far away from them as he possibly can. And he sulks in the bottom of the boat until he falls asleep because the truth is Jonah does not care about them. He's too depressed to get out of bed. He thinks, yeah, I'm desperate too. I'm desperately feeling sorry for myself. And I want to ask um, a question that I've, I've been asking myself this week as I'm thinking about this passage. And I think it's an uncomfortable question that makes us want to run away and it makes me want to run away. And the question is this, are we asleep, are we asleep to the needs of the people around us who may be perishing? Are we asleep to the needs of the people around us who may be perishing? Are we, are we paying attention to the people that God has placed right in our midst, um, maybe in our boat? Are we paying attention that they are desperate and they are crying out? Do we care about the fact that they might be perishing? That's my point. My point is this, that the church has a responsibility. As ones who've been shown mercy and ones who've been shown grace and ones who've been shown compassion 
to know what the world's problems are, to know what the world's questions are, and to actually speak to them and actually move towards them. And here's what happened is that too often the church, which is us, becomes consumed and absorbed with its own problems. And it starts having its own little issues and its own little fights and its own little personality conflicts. And it starts getting debates over what to name this program or that program. And there becomes, you know, um, concern over this decision made or that decision made. And all of those things have their place. But it's easy to miss the entire point that we exist in the first place is to be a light in the darkness. To be this conduit of God's compassion to the world and as our church you know as this church continues to grow and as it continues to change that that's something that becomes a danger to us why are we here because a church always has a danger and simply turning inward becoming self-absorbed becoming self-consumed but it's also true it's a it's true it can be true about us collectively but it certainly can be true about us individually that we can become a little bit obsessed with ourselves. That we become, we've got a lot of things going on, right? You know, we've got our own job, our own life, our own bills to pay, our own kids' sports and their schedules, which are crazy, and our own hurts and our own pains and our own wounds. And our thought of, you know, am am I saving enough money? Do I have enough money? And all of these things are constantly going through our mind and we look at the world around us and and we can easily, if we don't vocally say it, we can easily think, I don't have time for that. I've got my, I really have my own problems to worry about and I don't have time for any of that. And I think one of the most beautiful scenes really in this whole book is then God sends this pagan Gentile captain of the boat down to Jonah and he says to Jonah what are you doing asleep wake up why aren't you crying out to your God for us don't you care about us don't you care that we're perishing and often I think what what God is showing us is that he sometimes sends the world to the church and the world screams to the church Oh, you have a God that's omnipotent and sovereign and compassionate and slow to anger and full of loving kindness? Wake up. Don't you care that we're hurting? Don't you care that we're desperate? Don't you care that we're perishing? The question is, are we, are we asleep? It's so easy to be lulled asleep. I reread this week um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter to a letter from a Birmingham jail. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's such a beautiful letter, and it's also such a painful letter to read. Because he's being told, really, by white pastors to just calm down and to wait. And these problems, well, they'll pass. Don't stir the pot. Um, don't speak out too loudly. In one of his famous quotes from that letter, he says, We will have to repent in this generation not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. And that should ring in our ears because there's a sense in which we're the good people. The bad people are the ones doing violence and and, um, the bad people are out there, you know, um, doing whatever. 
I could say other things. I won't. But we kind of see ourselves, are, are we speaking out about the things that we see? You see, Jonah is Jonah's self-absorbed. Why is he self-absorbed? And I think if you follow the threads, Jonah is self-absorbed because Jonah is self-righteous. Jonah thinks that he is better than those people. That's, I mean, it's, it's really as simple as that. He thinks he deserves God's love and God's attention more than those people do. And he has simply forgotten the fact that he is a sinner that is saved by grace. And, and I think the question for us is if we find ourselves slipping into self-absorption, you know, are we checking our self-righteousness? Are we angry all the time because we think that we are not getting the things that we deserve? Is there, is there this current of, of anger and bitterness in your life because you feel like, I have worked hard, I have done really well, I have tried to be religious and moral and a good person, and still things are not panning out for me the way that I want them to, but you really have no concern for the people who are perishing because you kind of think, well, I mean, some of those people are lazy or they're not working as hard as I am, and maybe they're actually getting what they deserved. And if so, I think God is saying to us this morning, and he continues to say to us in his grace, in his mercy, he says, wake up. I didn't lavish you with my compassion and my grace and my love so that you can sit around sulking. I loved you so that you might go and love. I loved you and I made you eternally secure so that you might turn and you might go and love as well. And the way that you can tell if this is is taking hold of your life, and this is the test I think the New Testament gives us over and over again, the way that we can tell that our heart has actually been changed is by the way that we treat people who who are different than we are. It's by the way that we treat people who we really kind of at first glance or first thought think that they are outcast, dirty, hateful, silly, ignorant. The way that we can tell whether or not we understand the gospel, and the gospel says that I'm a, I'm a spiritual failure who has been saved by grace. The way that we see that it's taking shape in our life is how we treat the least of these, even those who persecute us, Jesus says. One, I think one who has been forgiven by God, this, is, this should be true of us, one who's been forgiven by God and who's been shown his compassion should be able to look in the, in the face of the most despised person and really, honestly, truly say, I am no different than you are. I am no different. It is only by God's mercy and grace. And so where in this passage do we see the compassion of God? I think, you know, this is a storm that he actually sends. I mean, we're told that very blatantly. God hurls the storm. So where is his compassion? Um, There's a sense in which his compassion is actually in the storm. And I think that if we look at this, we see the fingerprints of his mercy and his grace all over this. And first of all, we see God's compassion to Jonah. I mean, he sends this, this captain down to wake Jonah up. And the, really, some of the first words out of the captain's mouth, did you notice, are the first words that God speaks to Jonah at the beginning of this book. Arise. That he sends 
this probably, I mean, if you can picture it, this probably soaking wet, drenched, terrified, probably very strong man into the, this pagan, into, into the boat, into the very bottom of the boat, maybe grabbing Jonah and yelling into his face, why are you asleep? Arise. I mean, the, the irony is so thick, I can hardly comprehend it. The God, God is not, he's not letting go of Jonah, he's not giving up on Jonah, he's shaping Jonah and he's changing Jonah and he's bringing Jonah to a place of repentance. It, it, this is a message, ironically, that Jonah was sent to preach to the people that he despised and now it's being preached to him by ones that he despised. See, God loves Jonah enough to go, if you're going to preach this message, then you're going to have to understand it and embrace it, first of all, yourself. And how does he do that? Well, they all sit down and they cast lots to figure out, how did this evil come upon us? Who's the evil one in the boat? (laughs) And the lot falls on Jonah. You see? The Jonah is sitting there thinking, these are the evil people out there. And then I think this is the point where I think Jonah actually does wake up as the lot falls upon Jonah and Jonah starts to see that it turns out that maybe I'm the evil one. And you know, what we find is that God's grace and his compassion, it stings and it wounds often before it heals us. So how does Jonah respond? He responds by simply saying, this is what you need to do now, is you need to hurl me overboard, that you need to hurl me into the midst of this storm. And I don't know, we don't know what's going exactly through Jonah's mind. We don't know, I mean, maybe we, we would think he's despairing. He wants to end his life. I would like to think that Jonah is beginning to show a hint, maybe, of compassion. That maybe Jonah starts to see himself for, for who he is. That maybe um, the compassion of God has been begun to creep into his veins. And maybe he begins to see that he too is a sinner who can only be saved by grace. And in turn, he looks at these men differently and he even gives himself up for them. I don't know. But whatever the case, the sailors aren't having it. And they turn, they're saying, uh, nope, we're not throwing you overboard. We're going to paddle back to shore, maybe dump you on land. Um, we don't want your blood on our hands. We don't want, I think there's a sense in which the sailors are even saying, we would rather f- figure this out ourselves because it's always easy to resist grace at the beginning. But that's not happening. They can't do this. They can't get their way out of this by their own efforts. And they offer one of the first prayers in this book to the true and living God. The first prayer in this book comes out of the mouth of the very one's that Jonah despised. And I was reading a commentator on this, and he said, he, he put it this way, and I, I'm going to read it because I thought it, I can't say it better. He said, the people in the boat are not just incidental to the story. They're not just instruments that the Lord uses to deal with Jonah. On the contrary, Jonah is the instrument that the Lord uses to deal with them, bringing them to a knowledge of the living God. They're coming to the Lord in humility and need, followed in short order by thanksgiving and worship, is one of the reasons that God made Jonah in the first place. It's one of the reasons that God made Jonah in the first place. And God's compassion, it takes Jonah's failure, and it takes Jonah's self-righteousness, and he takes Jonah's rebellion, and he, and he, and he uses it to make his name credible among these men. 
And you look at this and you go, Jonah is so unlike Jesus in some ways. We've seen Jonah be selfish and scared and a coward. And yet Jonah is still God's prophet. And he can't still the waves himself, but he can give himself up to death. And he does, in a sense, satisfy the wrath of God. And he does, in a sense, set these sailors free from the threat of harm. And you see, Jesus says a greater Jonah has come. A greater Jonah is he. Because Jesus comes and Jesus hurls himself into the midst of a storm that we brought on ourselves. A storm that was brought on by our rebellion. And Jesus listens to the cries of the desperate and the despised. And he gives himself up for us. And this is the God that we worship. He is a God who is slow to anger. And he is a God who is full of loving kindness. And he is a God who is a friend of sinners. And if we know more and more the depth of our sin, we become overwhelmed with the magnificence of his grace. That is the point of this book. And so what is the role of the church in the world? I think that what it has to mean is that we start to truly care about the people in the boat. We start to truly care about the people of the boat, the people that he's placed in our neighborhood, the people that he's placed in our city, the people that he's placed in the desk next to us, the people wherever they are, we begin to truly care about them. And we realize that we are not here for ourselves. We are actually here for them. That we are not here for ourselves, but we're actually here for them. Let me pray. Father, uh, I pray that you would help us this morning. Uh, For those of us who know you, for those of us um, who are united to your son Jesus, that you would help us to see what it really means. We might grow accustomed to thinking about the fact that um, we belong to you or that we're Christians, but Father, I pray that we would, there would not be a day that passes that we're not astounded that we might be called children of the living God, that we might be called part of your household. Father, I pray that you would continue to shape us and mold us, even as you did like Jonah in this passage, um, that your grace would come to us and rattle us, um, that we would continue to stay awake, Um, that we would see that we don't exist here for ourselves, that we do exist even for the people um, that we may have at one time despised. And Father, I pray that as we learn to show compassion, that it would come from the deep wells of the compassion that you have lavished upon us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.